We've come to the last part of my part of this weekend series, this weekend meetings. This is the final presentation I will make. Now, this presentation is based on the two presentations yesterday afternoon that we had together. So if what I'm, what I'm saying is that this presentation will make clear sense if you understand what we talked about about the nature of sin. The nature of sin is critical to our understanding of what we're going to say today. And so those, this is a, a part of a, com- a complete uh, package. I, uh, if, you do, if you have not studied the nature of sin thoroughly, I encourage you to do that without further delay. All right, I think we have the handouts pretty well out there. Keep your hand up if you haven't got one, and uh, make sure that uh, you get one before they're finished. I'm going to ask that we bow our heads quietly and ask God to be with us. Father in heaven, please on this day in which we study the final movements of your great plan on this earth, please help us to understand in a new way who we are and why we are here, and what God is waiting for. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, you have the handout. Did you see that word at the top of it? That's a pretty scary word, isn't it? Do you feel perfect today? And so we avoid that word like the plague, don't we? We don't want to talk about that. You know what? Sometimes scary words need to be looked straight in the eye to see if they're as scary as they sound. Because sometimes they're not quite that way. So we're going to try that this morning. Let's look at it straight in the eye and see. We have some definitions here. Some definitions may help. Sin. Two possible definitions of sin. That's what we covered yesterday afternoon. Sin as nature. In other words, sin as equipment. Sin as a state of being, that we are sinners by birth and we remain sinning by nature until Jesus comes. Or, number two, sin as choice, that we are sinners because with our own free wills we have chosen to say no to God and gone our own way. Two different meanings of sin. And that will change everything depending on what you understand sin to be in righteousness by faith. Based on your understanding of what sin is, your understandings of sinlessness and perfection will be completely different. All right. Yesterday afternoon, I said that I believe that sin is about character, not about nature. That it is the way we develop our choices, not about the equipment we are born with. If you have made a decision about sin, then you have also automatically made a decision about sinlessness and when it will occur. If you believe that sin is definition number one, that it is the nature we are born with, then we will retain that nature until Jesus comes, and we will be sinning until Jesus comes by nature, even if not in thought, word, or action. And therefore, sinlessness can only refer to a sinless nature which we will have when Jesus comes. However, if you believe that sin is the character we develop by our choices, then we will believe also that sinlessness is the character developed by God's power and can take place before Jesus comes. Those are the two choices. So once you have decided what sin is, you have decided when sin will stop happening 
in this world and in your life. Now, perfection. You see, there are four different meanings for perfection. Can you guess why there's confusion on the subject? Four meanings for one word. That's not unusual. Absolute perfection. Who qualifies for absolute perfection? And let's stop right there, because no one else does. Not even angels, my friends. Not even angels, because angels, in their sinlessness, held wrong views of the character of Satan until Jesus died on the cross, and their views had to be corrected on that ba- at that time. Wrong decisions are not always sin. They refer to a lack of understanding with a finite mind, and even angels have that finite mind. They are not infinite. The only absolute perfection that there is in this universe is in three beings, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There is no absolute perfection even for those who will be in heaven for all eternity because we will be growing in our understanding. And I have a hunch that in the first few months of the millennial experience, we'll be changing a lot of opinions. We thought we had it all figured out down on this earth and we'll find out how stupid we really were. So absolute perfection is not a word that need apply to anything that, apply, that, that has to do with human beings. Number two, nature perfection. That's the same as a sinless nature. When the equipment is working right, when the computer operates correctly, nature perfection will not happen until Jesus comes. Don't expect it. It's not going to happen. The equipment will remain defective and the glitches will continue to occur in this system. Nature perfection at the second coming only. That doesn't apply to us today. That is a gift of God. Definition three, character surrender. How much of our lives do we give to Jesus Christ when we come to him? Isn't 90% pretty good? 95. You see, with Jesus Christ, it is all or nothing. That means all that we are aware of and that God has revealed to us up to that time. All. All. No, no little secret compartments in which we hold back a few things because we want that for ourselves. Everything goes to Him. Our whole lives, 100%. You can't give more than 100%. That's a perfect surrender. That is a complete surrender of everything to Jesus Christ. And listen very carefully now. That is the only requirement for salvation. There is no other requirement for salvation than a total surrender of the heart. God is not asking how old you are, how many classes you have taken, how many degrees you have, or how mature you are. He is asking only one question. Do you love me with all your heart? That's the only thing God wants to know. And that can vary by a person's experience, background, and culture in terms of how much we know about ourselves and how much we know about God. And God judges each one individually where they are. Do you love me? With all your heart, if you can honestly say yes to that question and say, I know of nothing that I'm holding back from you. I know of nothing that I'm resisting you on deliberately. If you can say, I truly love you with all my heart, then today, right now, you have the assurance of salvation. You have everlasting life. That's definition three. Definition four. If definition three is working right, if it's working correctly, that our hearts are surrendered today, guess what we'll be doing every day of our lives? Growing. Growing. Because God will reveal a little more of himself and a little more of us every day, every week, every month, and every year. 
And as we keep that surrender intact, it grows from a small circle to a larger circle to a larger circle as God keeps revealing more material to us. And we accept and follow in light of that material. And God says, now let me grow you into maturity. The fruit is being perfected. The harvest is becoming ripe. That's definition number four. So, of the four definitions of perfection, how many apply to us today? Today, right now, how many? Keep trying. Two. Absolute perfection, never. Nature perfection, after the second coming. Today, it's character surrender leading to character maturity. Now, that's pretty scary, isn't it? We don't want to talk about that. Character surrender today leading to character maturity, that's frightening, isn't it? Or is it just as normal as a little plant growing up in the ground to maturity? It's not scary at all. It's not frightening. It's not something we need to say, well, no, I don't want to think about that. God says, if you just love me and allow yourself to be, be molded by me, I'll grow you up. That doesn't sound too scary, does it? That sounds like, yeah, I want that. I want to be part of that program. Show me how it's done. So those are the only two meanings of perfection that matter for me and you today. Character surrender leading to character maturity. Now, what we're going to do is to try to uh, go through some Bible texts. I'm going to be asking one question now, this afternoon. Do, does the Bible teach character surrender leading to character maturity or character perfection or sinless character? Does the Bible teach it? All right. Let's open the Word of God. Let's see what we find. Jude, verse 24. Point number one. Every text we are going to read this morning is a text of promise. There are a lot of commands in the Bible. We're not going to read any of those texts. Every text we will read is a promise. Here's the first one. Now unto him that is able to keep you from from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Is that a promise? That isn't a demand, is it? It says he is able to keep you from falling. Well, I like that. That sounds good to me. Go to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 with me. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. The Lord, notice, it starts, The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations. If you've been delivered out of a temptation, what haven't you just done? You haven't fallen under it. You haven't yielded to it. And who does the delivering? The Lord knows how. We don't, my friends. God does. And we have to ask Him for the way, how it works. The Lord knows. And now my favorite of all, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. 
There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. In other words, we're all in the same boat together. Every one of us faces the same issues, just in different ways and styles, but the same. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you, allow you to be tempted above that ye are able. Promise number two. There, put that one in the bank. Satan would love to do all kinds of things to every professing child of God, but sometimes Satan is restrained by the power of God because it is patently unfair, not right, and God will not allow that to happen. He will not allow you to be tempted above your ability and with his help to deal with that temptation, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. Is there really, really, really a way of escape for every temptation that ever comes to our minds and our thoughts? Wow. What if we took the way of escape? What if we did? What would happen if we took the way of escape? All right, so what is that magical way of escape? Let me share a few thoughts. I find that it is a very difficult thing for me to do to sin against God while I'm on my knees talking to Him. It may be possible, but it's difficult. And I found one other thing about myself that I don't like so well. I have found that when there is a very attractive, enticing temptation coming to my mind, I don't feel like praying just then. Oh, I'll get to it, Lord. I'll, I'll, I'll get to some prayer in 10 minutes, 15 minutes, okay? Give me a little time. I want to think this one through. <laughs> Strange thing, isn't it? We know what would happen if we got on our knees right then. And we don't want that to happen right then. We'd rather spend a little time working through this enticing temptation. Another thing about prayer, ambulance prayer isn't the best praying to do. Lord, I'm in big trouble. I'm going down. Get me out. Just like in medicine, which is better, to have an ambulance pick you up from a car accident or not have a car accident? Preventive is always better than restorative. And preventive prayer is God's way of praying, my friends. Let's be specific. Here is a tool. Here is a way to understand how the way of escape really works. When there is a specific problem in your life that you know you sink under the waves more often than you would like, and that problem keeps coming back, and you keep being frustrated by that problem in your life, first of all, identify it. Identify it. Be honest. Don't just play around, Lord, deliver me from sinning. Say, Lord, I have this problem with, and name it before the Lord. If you have to, write it down. Get serious, get specific. I have this problem with. I can't overcome it. It takes me down every time. I know that the temptation is going to come next day, next week, three weeks from now. It's going to come again because it always comes back. And I know that when it comes, I'm no match for it. So, Lord, I'm going to turn this one over to you because I don't have the power to deal with it. I'm going to give this and name it. I'm going to give this to you right now. I'm going to ask for your power to come into my life, and I'm going to ask that you do what I cannot do in resisting this temptation. 
That's preventive prayer. And then, folks, don't pray it just once. If you have to, pray it five times a day. Because you know what Satan is waiting for? When you forget to pray. When you forget to put it before the Lord. And he says, oh, there, there. He didn't put it before the Lord. Now I'll come at him. Or her. So two, two principles on preventive prayer. Be specific and be persistent. Be specific. Name the sin that is dragging you down. And be, uh, be, and be persistent in praying it regularly, before putting it regularly before the Lord. And you know what? A while later, you will realize, hey, that isn't dragging me down like it used to. Something is different than it was before. It does happen. I guarantee it. I've experienced it. It works. Uh, it's a little bit of, you, you have to apply a little bit of a, Careful persistence and careful thought to it, but it works. And then when you're all done having the victory over that sin, then you can start on sin number two in your life. And then you can go to number three later on. God is very patient. He doesn't expect us with our very, very bad background and heredity and all the rest to do it all at once. God does give us time. And He allows us to grow in Him. And so preventive prayer is an outstanding way. Now, I'm going to share some things that I have found in a very fascinating place in the spirit of prophecy. It's not in your outline. That are ways of escape. We're looking for ways of escape from the temptations that Satan presents to us. Listen carefully. I'll give you the reference later. If Satan seeks to divert the mind to low and sensual things, isn't that what he's all about? And there are a lot of low and sensual things of all kinds. Just gossiping is a low and sensual thing, isn't it? Satan is pulling the mind down his way. If Satan is doing that, bring it, the mind, back again and place it on eternal things. Now, watch very carefully. There is one thing that God will not do for you in the battle against sin. He will not choose what you think about. You have free choice. He will not violate that. He will not say, I'm going to make you think about my things. You have the total freedom at all times, every minute of every day, to think about whatever you want to think about. And he is looking for us to bring the mind back again and place it on eternal things. All right, now, how do we do that? I've talked about one thing, and that's prayer. There are a couple of other ways that we can place our minds on eternal things. Our uh, parents, and maybe our grandparents more accurately, knew something that we in our brilliant, sophisticated, technological generation have almost totally forgotten. We today, we have many Bibles and many versions, and we have them right at hand in our, wherever we are. We have one with us. We have them in our homes. We have them in our rooms. And then when we're on the, on the road, we even can get a little gadget in our hands, and we can start punching things, and there's a Bible text. Wow. Who needs to memorize Scripture anymore? Why, that's old-fashioned. We just punch it up, and there it is. No need to memorize Scripture, is there? Or have we forgotten something that our grandparents knew very well, that this is one of the most powerful weapons against temptation ever devised by God? 
it really doesn't matter what you memorize either because all of the Bible is the Word of God with power. So memorize whatever's easiest for you at the beginning. Memorize whatever flows. Memorize whatever your mind can get around. Memorize. If you've memorized five verses, just five verses, that's two minutes of time on eternal things. Remember, Satan is pulling the mind down, and your mind wants, you, you make the decision, I want my mind on eternal things, not on this. If you can immediately start repeating aloud the words of Scripture, if you've got five verses, that's two minutes of time, three minutes of time on eternal things. If you can manage one chapter, that's ten minutes of time on eternal things. Two chapters, twenty minutes of time on eternal things. You know what? After ten minutes of time repeating Scripture, what was that that uh, Satan was pulling me down with? What, what was I thinking about before? Do you see the point? The mind shifts its direction, and you begin to focus on something other than what you, Satan is pulling you toward. There's another way, even easier than memorizing Scripture, and that is singing. Amen. It works. Songs are even easier to memorize in Scripture because they flow with music. And if you can just break out in song, when that thought hits you, all of a sudden you've got several minutes of time away from that thought. Doesn't work too well in the middle of church, but other places it works very well. On the subway. <laughs> On the subway, there you are. Three ways, three methods of getting our mind on eternal things prayer, preventive prayer, that is, scripture memorization, and song. Three ways to get your mind on eternal things. Now remember, so far, we haven't had any victory over sin. All we've done up to this point is get our mind off of one thing and onto another thing. No victory yet. But we've gotten ourselves into a place where victory is possible. Now listen carefully. When the Lord sees the determined effort made to retain only pure thoughts, you know that's all he wants to know? Are you serious? What do you really want to think about? That's what he's asking. Do you want to think about this or do you want to think about that? Which is your choice? Are you serious? When the Lord sees the determined effort made to retain only pure thoughts, He will attract the mind like the magnet. All right, watch what's going on here. Here is Satan pulling this mind of ours down to his level. And you, by your permission, have, given, have granted Christ the opportunity to grab hold on the other side. And he's going to pull the mind to his level. Who is going to win that little tug of war? Are you sure? Are you absolutely sure? Christ is going to win the tug of war in your mind. Mark it down. If you just let him have the handle to your mind. If you just let him have permission. Then notice what happens. He will purify the thoughts. Don't think you're going to do it. Don't think you're going to do it. It's going to take a miracle of God to get this mind purified. Everything up to this point has been moving your mind toward the place where a miracle can happen because it can't happen over here. It has to happen where God can work on that mind. 
You have given God permission. You have used the steps to move your mind into harmony with his mind. And now he begins the miracle working process. You know, I uh, have talked to people who have smoked cigarettes all their life and they've decided that maybe their doctor scared them and they've decided that's it, I'm done with cigarettes and they throw that pack of cigarettes in the garbage and never touch it again. Yeah. You just try that with an impatient spirit and see how it works. I'm never going to be impatient again. I'll never lose my temper again. I'll never say anything like that again. Well, never again last two days generally. You are never going to be able to purify your thoughts by any self-help method or willpower or grit or determination that there is available in the human race. Sin is too deeply rooted in our sinful nature and our habits of sin. And we don't have the power to deal with it. It will take a miracle of God. Now, how does God do it? I don't know. But scientists are telling us that there are interesting things happening in our brains all the time. When an input, a sensory input from the outside comes into our brain, it begins to pass through certain pathways in the brain that connect with others by little synapses that electrical impulses cross those and they form what they call boutons or little buttons or enlargements on the ends of nerve fibers so that the message can travel rapidly and quickly down those pathways. Why is it, for instance, that when some, someone says something to you that isn't very kind and maybe belligerent and angry, the first thing that happens is your face starts to turn color, a little red maybe, because some pathways have been formed in your brain. Input has come in, pathways formed, and the, your skin is an organ of the body, and it reacts. Can God change brain pathways? Yes, he can. And there is the miracle of victory over sin. Because instead of those same sensory inputs going down those same pathways, by, God, by your permission, God is able to redirect brain pathways and shrink boutons and grow new ones. So that when that person says that very same thing, that same cutting thing, that same hurtful thing to you, the immediate spontaneous reaction is a smile on your face. I'll get you to it. The miracle, the miracle of purifying the thoughts. The miracle of purifying the thoughts. And then she concludes, and he will enable them to cleanse themselves from every secret sin. Amen. There's the promise. The method, getting your mind on eternal things. Putting yourself in the place where God can work. And then asking God for a miracle of purifying thoughts. Now she doesn't end there. The first work of those who would reform, the first work is to purify the imagination. Oh, now we're getting right down to it. The imagination. Now I've been with you about 24 hours now, a little more had good fellowship, spent some time in eating together, talking together, praying together. People have come and prayed with me before meetings. That's really nice. I don't get that in churches around the country. Thank you for that. Okay. 
As far as I can tell, all of you are ready for translation just about now. I haven't heard anyone lose their temper. I haven't heard anyone gossip. I've heard no unkind words. Everyone has been a model of Christian perfection, ready for translation. We look good in church or meetings like this, don't we? We wear our good clothes and we wear our best smiles because we don't want to be thought badly of in church. Not there. Is that where we really live? In church? Or where does the real you and the real me really live? Right here. Right between our ears. That's where the real you and the me, the re, me really lives. And you know what? We can do all kinds of things right here that we would never do out there because of certain penalties involved if we carried these thoughts into actions. Are we all clear on that? There are some things we would do if there were not penalties attached to them in our world today. Why is it that if we're driving 50 miles an hour down a city street which has a clearly marked 35 mile an hour speed limit because we want to get where we want to get quicker than the speed limit will allow just because we want to do it. Why is it that the most interesting thing on our automobile is the rear view mirror? <laughs> you see, we're not interested in obeying the law. We're interested in not getting a traffic fine, a citation, a record that puts our insurance up. That's the only reason we're obeying that law. The law we hate, but we don't want to get a ticket for breaking it. But now when you go home, when you go home and park the car in the garage, and you can go into your own personal private room and in your mind, you can get into the hottest Ferrari there is and drive 200 miles an hour down every street in town, just like the video games, you know? And you can avoid all of the, the, the cops, and they can't touch you, and you can have the greatest time breaking every law in town up here in your mind. You see, that's where the real you and the real me lives. Do we think thoughts that are correct because we have been transformed or because we, uh, or, or do we just uh, say, I, I, don't want to avoid, I want to avoid the penalties, so I'll just think them up here and we'll carry them out out there. Why do we think the way we do? Ellen White says, remember this, 99% at least of all sin takes place in the imagination. That's where sin occurs, in the, in the thoughts we choose to dwell on. The first work is to purify the imagination. When tempted to yield to a corrupt imagination, then, notice the next word, flee to the throne of grace and ask for strength from heaven. Flee is the correct word, just like you would be doing from a robber. Flee to the throne of grace and pray for strength from heaven. And then she says, in the strength of God the imagination can be disciplined to dwell upon things which are pure and holy. In the strength of God. Never in our own strength. Never in our own capabilities. 
That's 1 Corinthians 10.13, my friends, in other words. The reference is Mind, Character, and Personality, that compilation, MCP, Volume 2, page 595. Volume 2, page 595. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says there is a way of escape for every temptation that comes to us. Let us be serious about the way of escape. Let us not say, Lord, just help me to stop sinning. That's no way of escape at all. Let's find the way that God has designed for us to escape these temptations that beset us. Please turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. Now, watch carefully, folks. If your faith level is pretty weak this morning, I would encourage you to close your Bibles for the next three texts because you will not survive them. Your faith is going to have to be mighty strong to believe what we're going to read because what we're going to read sounds absolutely ridiculous and impossible. All right? Fair warning. If you look it up, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. Casting down, ah, imaginations, and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity most every thought to the obedience of Christ. Now, I gave you the reasonable understanding of this verse, didn't I? How in the world is it possible for a human being like you and me, with our minds all messed up by heredity and our choices to sin, to have every single thought, 100% of the time, every day of the year, in captivity to Jesus Christ? Now, how many sins would we be committing if that were true? Zero. So this is a text that can't possibly mean what it says. This is one of those impossible-to-believe texts. There are a few of those in Scripture. You kind of write them off. You set them aside because God doesn't mean what he said. Bringing into captivity. Now let me ask you a simple question. Was every thought of Jesus Christ in captivity to his heavenly Father? See how easy that was to answer? And if Jesus had the same heredity and the same temptations and the same problems that you and I have to face, and if his mind could be in captivity to the Heavenly Father, then why should we be so afraid of letting this text apply to us today? Because this is about us. It's not about Christ. And what I said yesterday was, the only way I know to ha- how to talk about righteousness by faith is to talk about the one who was righteous by faith and how he lived that life. And then maybe I'll have a clue as to what the experience can be for me today. Without that, I'm a floundering in a, in, a, in a sea. All right, let's try another impossible text. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. Let's read verse 17 first. For the flesh. Now, what we talked about yesterday was every time you read the word flesh in the King James Version of the Bible, it means not what is on your bones. It has nothing to do with that. It means everything about us, mind and body, as a result of the fall. That's the word flesh. Every time you read it in the New Testament, it means our fallen nature, mind and body. For the flesh, this fallen nature, lust against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other. You figured that out already. The spirit and the flesh are at opposite poles. 
The spirit and the fallen nature are opposite to each other, and they pull in different directions. Now let's read verse 16. This I say then, walk in the spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now let's break that down. For those of you who were in my seminar yesterday afternoon, James 1.14, what is the lust of the flesh? Give me a one-word substitute for the phrase, the lust of the flesh. Temptation, thank you. The Christian world would say sin. The Christian world defines sin as anything that pulls us even if we don't yield to it. That means we sin pretty constantly and can't do much about it. It is all about the nature of sin that defines these texts. No, James 1.14 says the lust of the flesh is temptation. It is the pulls of nature. Now, give me a one-word substitute for the phrase, fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's sin. Now let's read the text again. Walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not sin. That's pretty tough, isn't it? I've been walking in the Spirit now a long time. I'm still sinning. Can't mean what it says. Walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not sin. Turn it around. If we are sinning, we are not walking in the Spirit. No, no, that can't be right. That can't be literal. That's got to be some symbolic, allegorical meaning that we have to let some scholar figure out for us. Can't mean what it sounds like because it hasn't been true in my experience or anyone I know. My friends, are we basing our understanding of the Word of God and righteousness by faith on our or anyone else's past experience? And the answer is yes, we are. That is what is defining righteousness by faith in the Christian world and in the Adventist church today. What I have experienced or not experienced becomes the norm for what the Bible must mean. Let us give that up. Let us decide to base our understandings on the Word of God even when it is totally contrary to reason and experience. It's called faith. Righteousness by faith. Faith in what God has promised. Walk in the Spirit, and you shall not sin. My friends, easy question. Does the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, sin? Well, does He sin in you and me, then? Okay. So what happens when I sin? I say, not in words, but actually I say, Holy Spirit, would you just step over there a couple of minutes? I'm going to be about something over here, and uh, I'll get back to you in a few minutes. And then you can sin. And that's the only way you can sin. Because the Holy Spirit will not sin in you. A teacher of mine put it so simply so many years ago, Christ in, sin out. Sin in, Christ out. There are no two masters here. Either we serve Christ or we're serving sin, and that is Satan, one or the other. And so right here, my friends, it says that if we are truly walking in the Spirit, which is supposed to be what we have, are when we're born again, then we will not be sinning against God. One of those impossible texts. One more impossible text, 1 John chapter 3. The toughest of them all. We'll just pick out a few verses. 1 John chapter 3, look at verse 6. Whosoever abideth in him, 
sinneth not. Wow. Look at verse 8. He that committeth sin is of the devil. Verse 9. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him. Whose seed? God's seed remaineth in him. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. Notice the word he cannot sin. It's not should not, must not, cannot sin. Wow, that just blows it right away. That's got to be the ultimate meaningless text. (laughs) Show me one person that has ever lived that text. And so we've come up with solutions. This text, we are told, and it's true, these, verse, these verbs are in the present tense. So here's the way we need to understand it. Go back to verse 6. Whosoever is abiding in him is not sinning continually. Verse 8. He that is continually sinning is of the devil. Well, there I've got my answer. If I'm sinning continually, just over and over and over and over and over, then I'm of the devil. But if my sin is just occasional, then I'm in Christ. Occasional sins, okay. Continual sins, no good. Ah, solved our problem, haven't we? Or created a monster problem. Because now, you see, I've got to know the difference between occasional and Continuous or habitual, that's another word, habitual sin. How do I know the difference between an occasional sin and a habitual sin? Because in one I am saved, in the other I am of the devil. i got to know the difference. So how many losses of temper per week will push me from the occasional to the habitual? Is it three, four, two, or seven? Please come up with an answer because one way I'm saved and one way I'm lost. How many times do I have to cheat on my income tax before it becomes habitual? Oh, those are good questions, aren't they? Catholic Church figured this out centuries before we're here. There are two kinds of sin, they say. One is mortal and one is venial. The mortal ones are the ones which will cause you to lose your salvation. The venial, venial, you just take your sin to the priest and give you a few indulgences or Hail Marys and it's fine. Big sins, little sins. Major sins, not so major sins. Occasional eruptions, no problem. Just don't keep it erupt all the time. No, my friends. It is in the Greek present tense, which is the same as the English present tense. There's no difference in the concepts there. It means present action, not past and not future. Just what is going on right now. Let's read it again in the actual way it says. 1 John chapter 3, verse 6. Whosoever is presently abiding in him is presently not sinning. It's not talking about the past or the future. Right now, if you're abiding in Christ, you are not sinning. Verse 8. He that is presently committing sin is presently of the devil. That's what it says. Present sin means present control by Satan. It does. And that's the, part, that's the part of righteousness by faith which is totally denied by the Christian world and in the Adventist church it's coming in, sweeping into our churches. It's okay just as long as you don't sin a lot. A little sin, God tolerates. It's okay. You know, these three texts we have read are so impossible, so unreasonable that... People have come up with solutions. I want to share with you a scholarly solution to this problem 
Uh, it comes from a gentleman not many miles from here. Does perfection represent a destination that the believer will actually reach at some point in time, or is it instead an ideal which, like the navigator's star, keeps the Christian traveler on the right course throughout his journey? Is perfection a destination or an ideal that you'll never reach? You'll never get to a star on this earth, but you can keep that star in mind and you can keep on moving toward it. You'll never get there, of course, but you can move that direction. We see then that statements affirming the possibility of perfection serve the purpose of encouragement rather than prediction. They refer to an ideal that gives direction and motivation to the Christian's experience rather than to a specific level of achievement that will actually be reached at some point during this life. So what is perfection? Oh, it's a goal. It's an ideal. It's not a destination. You'll never reach it. But at least you'll get up and try. You'll give it a shot. You know you won't make it. You'll never come in harbor time. The ship will never come into the harbor. But at least you'll be somewhere close. Maybe. Is that what God's promises are all about? Does God promise things that He knows are impossible just so we'll get up off our duff and try? I don't believe God treats us that way. I believe God treats us as intelligent beings created in His own image, and when He says something, He means what He says, because He is the one who will take care of it. He will do what He promises. Well, let's take a look at some of the spirit of prophecy statements that you have here. I'm not going to read very many of them. I encourage you to read them. Remember what I said yesterday? Don't believe what I say because I said it. Believe it because you have studied it for yourself and you are convicted in your own heart. That's why I give you these outlines. I'm not going to go over everything with you. Third paragraph in the Ellen White Statements, Desire of Ages 311. No, I'm sorry, Desire of Ages 123, the fourth paragraph. 123. Not even by a thought did he, Christ, yield a temptation so it may be with us. One of those impossible promises again? Two-thirds down the page, IHP, in Heavenly Places, page 146, the last sentence in that long paragraph. Everyone, notice the words, everyone who by faith obeys God's commandments will reach the condition of sinlessness in which Adam lived before his transgression. A lot of people are very scared about the word sinlessness. Apparently Ellen White was not. And the only way that makes any sense is if sin is all about character, not about nature. The only way that makes any sense. Turn to page 2. Second paragraph on page 2. Review and Herald, April 1, 1902. Christ has made every provision for the sanctification of His church. When is that taking place? Right now in this world. Now go down to the ellipsis and follow after that. He, Christ, came to this world and lived a sinless life that in His power His people might live lives of. There it is again, that dreaded word. He came to this world not just to die for us, but to show us the way of holiness and victory. Halfway down the page, G-A-G. Does anybody know what that means? 
God's amazing grace. Our Savior does not require impossibility of any soul. He expects nothing of His disciples that He is not willing to give them grace and strength to perform. Now the sentence. He would not call upon them to be perfect. If He had not at His command every perfection of grace to bestow on the ones upon whom He would confer so high and holy a privilege. Did I read any commands there? What did I just read? promise, a gift. That's all it talks about. A perfection of grace which is bestowed and conferred as a privilege. You see, God works like this. You have two fists. And God says, will you just take that fist and open it up and let me pour in my forgiving grace. I will take care of all the guilt of the past and all of the things you have messed up in your life and you'll be clean. And you say, yes, Lord. And he pours in his forgiving grace and we are clean. And then God says, I see you have another hand, another fist. And would you just please open that other hand up and allow me to pour in my overcoming grace. It's all grace. It just does two different things. And then we look at these two gifts and we say, hmm, that one means lifestyle changes, doesn't it? That one means that I yield certain things that uh, I don't want to yield. I'd like to stay with this one, Lord. This is good. And that's the Christian gospel right there in one sentence. I love this gift. I'm a little edgy about this one. That's not so nice. Which of the two gifts that God gives to us is the better gift? Which is the better gift? Isn't it this one? You know how much better this gift is than this one? There is coming a time, maybe not far off in our own experience and our lifetime, when God is going to remove for all eternity this beautiful gift of forgiving grace and it will be removed from every human being on the planet and only this other gift of overcoming grace will be in play for the rest of eternity. Now, why is God going to do that? Because He rips away things we need? Does God ever do that? Does He take away things that are necessary for our survival and our salvation? He only takes away, He ends things that have no meaning anymore. No relevance, no purpose. Because you see, it's God's plan that He will fill us so full of overcoming grace that this other gift will no longer be necessary. And He says, why, I can step out of the heavenly sanctuary, put on different clothes, do a different job, and we're on to new business. We're getting ready for eternity. And we'll just dispense with what is no longer needed, forgiving grace. You see, forgiving grace is like a halfway house out of jail. It helps you to kind of get in the way of the world, but not completely yet. You can adapt a little bit. Is the halfway house the end of the destination? God wants to take us to the real world, the real experience. Praise God for forgiving grace. It's the stepping stone to real grace which is restoring grace and overcoming grace. That's God's plan, and that's what we just read right here. Overcoming, any talk about perfection, any talk about sinlessness, is a gift of God's grace. A gift of God's grace. Turn to page 3. Third paragraph. Review and Herald, March 10, 1904. He who has not sufficient faith in Christ to believe that he can keep him from sinning has not the faith that will give him an entrance into the kingdom of God. 
See, what we're talking about right here, my friends, is faith. It is righteousness by faith. And faith means believing the promises of God as they stand, no matter what my experience in the past has been or people around me. That's faith. That's faith. Believing what God says as He says it, even if it seems unreasonable to us. And that's why it says that if we do not have that faith to believe that He can keep us from sinning, we do not have the faith that gets us into heaven at all. Because it's all about faith. And then she talks about Enoch, two paragraphs, and then two-thirds down the page, that wonderful sentence, and there are Enoch's in this our day. You mean there are ready, people ready for translation in this our day? Oh, well, will you show me who they are? Who, are you ready? Are you perfect yet? Oh, my, the questions we ask. I know virtually nothing about myself, much less about you. The only one who knows... If there are Enoch's in this our day, is the only one who needs to know, and that is our Heavenly Father. Because it's about Him, not about us. Can He produce Enoch's? Yes, He can, and He knows who they are, and that's all we need to know. And on the other side, we can ask the questions we're asking today. To ask them today is ridiculous. And there are Enoch's in this our day. And then the next three paragraphs warn us that we will not going around saying, Hey, I'm an Enoch. I haven't sinned for three years. Because what have we just done right then? We've just sinned. So be warned. Don't claim what only God can claim for us. Well, there you have some of the Spirit of Prophecy statements. I will encourage you to read them all. Now, we are having a very, as I mentioned earlier, a very devastating teaching coming into the Seventh-day Adventist Church that says that God will overlook sins because that's just a reality of life and he will just write them off and ignore them because our hearts are right and we love Jesus and therefore it's okay if we sin occasionally. It'll be all right because he, does, because he loves us so much. Uh, one little statement that perhaps needs to be brought to our attention. Every transgression brings the soul into condemnation and provokes the divine displeasure. Every transgression brings the soul into condemnation. We're not being taught that today. We're being taught that we can remain in a saving relationship with Jesus Christ even while committing known sin before repentance of that sin. David, we're being told, was saved for that full year after his sin with Bathsheba because he still loved the Lord. Yes, I ask that question and that's the answer I get in many cases. So God will overlook the sins that we commit. But Ellen White says every transgression brings the soul into condemnation. Do we retain justification while in known sin? That's the question. Let's hear it again. No one who truly loves and fears God will continue to transgress the law in any particular. Whatever his profession may be, he is not justified, which means pardoned. Those two references are Testimonies, Volume 4, page 623, and My Life Today, page 250. And then if that wasn't enough, try this one. The willful commission of a known sin, a known sin, separate, silences the witnessing voice of the Spirit and separates the soul from God. Whatever may be the ecstasies of religious feeling, Jesus cannot abide in the heart that disregards the divine law. We cannot for one moment separate ourselves from Christ with safety. Messages to Young People 114. 
That is not popular today in Christianity or in Adventism. Those are very, very unpolitically correct statements that Ellen White made. The principle is simple. When our hand is connected with the hand of Jesus Christ, we are righteous because he is righteous. When our hand is slipping out of the hand of Jesus Christ, we have no righteousness. We have no reservoir, no gas tank to fill up with righteousness, no battery to store up righteousness. Connection is righteousness. Disconnection is unrighteousness. So, are we all now totally discouraged that we are now hopeless because we are separated from God because we know we've sinned? You know what the most important thing may be? What happens if we slip and fall? What happens if we make a mistake? What happens if we don't carry out our best impulses and we make a slip? Okay? We're not talking about premeditation now. We're talking about a slip. You know what the most important thing to do? What is your next step after the slip? You have two options. The human option. was my fault. I wouldn't have said that if she hadn't said that to me. When she says she's sorry, I'll say I'm sorry. That's the human reaction. We take this hand that was in the hand of Christ, we clench it behind our backs, and we stand there defiant because our rights were violated. That's the human reaction. And my friends, in that spirit of mind, we have no righteousness. There is no justification. There is only condemnation, as long as that spirit controls our lives. What should we do? The moment that hand begins to slip out of the hand of our Savior, we say, wait a minute, that's dangerous. I don't want that even for one minute. And we say, Lord, I'm sorry. I have dishonored your name. Please take my hand back. Does he say, well, I'll wait and see if you really mean it. He takes it back. He takes it back. And God does not count milliseconds. Well, you were lost for three seconds there. This is not yo-yo religion as some categorize it. God takes that hand back and you remain in the saving relationship with Him as long as the hand is in His hand by communion with Him. And so, my friends, let us be sure of what we understand about the gospel, about righteousness by faith. Your decision now, does the Bible teach that we will have character perfection, character maturity, and even that dreaded word, sinlessness? You have to decide for yourself. And now one last thing, and I am going to impinge a little more on my friend Tim's time. Why have I spent all my time talking about definition four, character maturity, when I told you earlier that the only part that was relevant for salvation was definition three, character surrender? And I've spent all this time talking to you about something else than surrender. I've talked to you about maturity, overcoming, sinlessness. Well, go down on this outline now to the bottom of the page. On the left-hand side of the page, it says close of probation. I'll let you read those texts and study them for yourself. There is a close of probation. We're the only church who teaches that because we have the only gospel that allows that. The only gospel that allows it. If we lose this gospel, we lose Adventism. If we lose this understanding of righteousness by faith, we close the doors on the great experiment of the Seventh-day Adventist church. Because we lose 144,000, we lose sinlessness, we lose the ceiling, and we lose the close of probation. That's how important this gospel is. All right, to the right-hand side of that page. Would you turn with me to two more texts, and we'll close with those two texts. Revelation 7 and Revelation 14.
Revelation 7.1 describes our time with the four angels struggling to hold the winds of strife, holding them back so this earth is not destroyed. And verse 2 describes an angel coming from the east with a seal, the seal of God. In verse 3 he says, Hurt not the earth, neither the trees, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and there were sealed 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Mark it down. There will not be an end to this world's pain, struggle, and misery until God's people are sealed in their foreheads. It is not about how many people we witness to. It is not even how many people we baptize. It is not even about how many in the 1040 window are brought to Jesus Christ. It is about God's people ready for the seal of God. When that happens, there will be a latter rain, there will be a loud cry, and the gospel will go to the world overnight. God is waiting not for the Pope in Rome to do something. He is waiting for you and me. Now, what does that mean, that we receive the seal of God in our foreheads? Turn to Revelation 14. And I looked. And lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him, an hundred and forty and four thousand, having his father's name written in their foreheads. Can you guess what the seal of God is? The father's name written in our minds, in our characters, in the way we think, in our attitudes. And then look at verse 5 in the application of this. And in their mouth was found no guile. That means hypocrisy or deceit. None of that. For they are without fault before the throne of God. If you would like to do a little study, the word without fault in the original language is used in the next two verses that I've listed there referring to Jesus Christ. Without fault before the throne of God. You know, if I were God's advisor, I would have advised him not to put these two texts in the Bible. You'd just be very glad I'm not God's advisor. Because your Bible would be a little thinner. Why? Why are these two texts so dangerous? What God is saying is, before the end of time, before things come to their final conclusion, I will have a people so totally loyal to me, so totally surrendered to me, so totally in my way of doing things, that I will put my seal on them and I promise that they will never sin again. Notice the word is not, I guarantee But I promise. In other words, God is not going to push a button in our brains so that we can't sin. God is promising that when His seal goes on, sin goes out forever. That's God's promise. You know how serious this is? One more time to the Ellen White statements on page 1, the first page on the back of your outline. Page 1, halfway down the first page. Halfway down the first page, Desire of Ages 671. The very image of God is to be reproduced in humanity. The honor of God, the honor of Christ is involved in the perfection of the character of His people. Whose honor is at stake here? Not mine. I've got no honor here. I've got nothing that, you know, that's, that stands at stake. It is whether God can carry out His promise. That's what's at stake. And what is His promise? His promise is, he that is faithful will be faithful still and holy still, and he that is unjust will stay that way. There will be no shifting camps. And Satan says, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I know Preby pretty well. I know the places in his life that I've been very successful in before, 
You mean when that seal goes on, that you're going to step out of the heavenly sanctuary, forgiving grace will be removed, and it will be all or nothing from that point on? And if I get um, 51% of the sealed ones to sin, I win? Is that it? How many, how many of God's sealed ones does Satan have to commit, get to break their vows to prove that God is a liar? One person, one time. And God's great plan is gone because his honor is gone, his credibility is gone, his promises haven't been fulfilled, and he has proved to be a liar. Satan says, bring it on. I'm ready. I thought I got defeated back there at the cross. It looked pretty bad. But then I was able to take the whole Christian church down with me. And then there was a reformation, and again, it didn't look so good, but I got them too. And then there was a last day church, and it didn't look so good for a while, but then they started down the same road too. I think, Satan says, I'm still going to pull this one out of the fire. It's the last of the ninth with two out and two strikes, but I've got one more chance, and I'm going to get this one. Because it isn't Christ I have to deal with anymore. It's Preby, and he's a, he's a pushover. I'm going to get him. And Satan says, Let's bring it on. Close probation. Just go ahead, God, and close probation. And then I'm going to turn loose the greatest deceptions, the greatest temptations that I have ever brought to this world upon your chosen remnant people. And we will see who's going to win this one. We will see. Listen, my friends. You don't get in a steel box in the close of probation. That's not what protects you. It is faith in the promises of God that protects you in that alone. And the only thing you've got going for you is this word, the word of God that we've been reading and those impossible promises. That's all you've got. And the only way you will stand up against Satan's determined final ditch attempt, I mean, he is like an animal that is cornered with no chance to get out except straight at you. And he's coming straight at us. And he is going to use every temptation and persecution and ability that he has in his hands to get one of us to slip one time. And God says the most impossible thing he has ever said in 6,000 years of human history, I will take the weakest of the weak, I will take those that have been sinning all of their lives, and I will turn them into sinless, victorious, marching armies. I'm glad I'm not God's advisor. How about you? God put the text in the Bible because he means what he says. Now, I've talked enough about Satan. Do you believe that God is going to win this battle? That carries one simple price tag with it because God will never put his seal upon someone that isn't ready or willing to receive it. It wouldn't be fair, would it? To God or to us. God was ready to do his sealing work 100 years ago, but his people weren't sealable. And so God said, in mercy, I'll let come back. I'll let you all go to your graves. That will save a good number of you because you'll repent of your sin. And so you'll be in the kingdom for all eternity. It's God's mercy pulling back. And he says, I'll try again in another generation. So, my friends, we have the same option right now. If we are a little bit, eh, I don't know about sealing. That doesn't sound like what I want. God in mercy will pull back again. He will do it. Because he is going to win this great controversy, my friends. And he will not win it with half Christians. And so he'll pull back again if he has to. 
And you and I will go to our graves wondering why our songs and desires and hopes were thwarted again. And God will find a generation that will be Revelation 14 and 7. He will find a generation. That's the price tag. God will win, but through whom and when? So you know my next question, don't you? Will you and I be that generation? That's all. It's not a matter of what God has said and what God can do and all the rest. It's about whether you and I will be that generation. And the only way you and I can be that generation, my friends, and here's my final appeal, my last word of this weekend together, the only way you and I can be that generation is if with all our hearts and minds and souls and bodies, we want more than anything else in this life to be the final generation sealed by God. We have to want it, folks. We can't just sit back and say, well, I'll wait for the sealing. We have to want it. We have to make sure that what we will repeat the mistakes of the previous generations if we don't learn from them. We have to learn why it didn't happen 100 years ago and why that beautiful message was set aside and buried and is now coming back to life. It's not a coincidence. It's providence. The same message that would translate God's people 100 years ago will translate God's people today. And we're deathly afraid of that message in many cases because we don't like the implications. And so, my friends, my appeal to you is very simple this morning. If you want to be the generation that will see Jesus Christ come, if you want to be the ones who are sealed by God, then go home after this meeting. Don't do it now because we're all just kind of listening to to meetings. We don't have much time to think. We're just kind of going to dinner and coming back and listening to another meeting. When you go home, and you have some downtime, some alone time with God in your private place of prayer where you and God talk together, do some wrestling with God. Do some agonizing with Him. Very few of us know what it is to wrestle with God and agonize and pour out our hearts to Him for the sins in our lives that have been thwarting God's purpose and keeping Satan alive and running this planet and killing babies on it. Let us get serious about who God calls this generation to be and what must happen. And when those sins in our lives that we know are thwarting God's plans, let us say, Lord, I'm going to lay them all before you. Take every one of them out. Remove them from my life. Let Jesus Christ come into my life, and I will be walking in the Spirit. And then these mysterious promises will be real. Let's be sealable, Seventh-day Adventists, my friends. That's all that Adventism is about. If we are, Adventism succeeds. If we aren't, Adventism goes into failure mode. That's all that Adventism is about, is whether we will be a sealed generation. That's what remnant means, the final sealed, holy generation that proves that Satan is the biggest liar in the universe and he has no power. Not when it counts. That's what will take Satan down and bind him for a thousand years. That's the only way he's going to get bound. A fit man must take the scapegoat into the wilderness. And that fit man, I believe, is God's last generation. Under God's power that take the scapegoat away 
and bind him for a thousand years. That's all I want to say, folks. Let's be that generation. Let's be the 144,000. Let's be Seventh-day Adventists. How about it? This is a unique message, a unique people, and a unique experience, and let's be it. Let's not play on the edges of Christianity anymore. Let's be that generation that will see Jesus Christ come in the clouds of heaven. Would you get on your knees as far as possible with me? And let's ask God for that to happen. Father, right here in this meeting hall today, I want there to be at least 500 of the 144,000. I want there to be this group that will be the signal lights for everyone that they come in contact with, for everyone that they are talking to, that something big is happening in the Seventh-day Adventist church, that there is something beyond the imagination of anyone just on the horizon of our experience. And I want this generation that we are alive today in to be the last one that will see Satan's rulership of this planet and his angry activities. Let us stop the mouth of the lion by your power. So, Father, take us, weak, sinning, hardly able to resist anything that comes our way, and turn us into the miracle of all miracles, a generation of victorious Christians who have stopped sinning in their lives because they would rather die than to dishonor your name. Oh, Lord, take us. Take us and make us the impossible dream of the whole universe the ones that will take this witness to the entire universe and tell the rest of the unfallen worlds how powerful God really is so that sin can never arise a second time. Oh, Lord, may we see the beauty and the glory and the, and the, and the wonder of being the possible last generation. No other generation, not even Abraham's time and not Paul's time, is even close to this time. This is the generation above all others that have ever lived on the face of this earth. Let us be that generation, Lord. Let us commit ourselves to you, Lord, so that you can do the impossible in us. And we thank you because the victory has been gained in Jesus Christ and we claim that victory today in his name. Amen.